So this is Living Out Who You Are, part two, and we're looking at essentially the remove and replace principle that Paul has been uh, teaching us and that he's been bringing to the attention of the Ephesians. And so let's read these next two verses, and uh, we'll give a little bit of uh, a review, and then we'll come forward. Notice in verse number 28 of Ephesians 4, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now we're in the midst of a passage that Paul has been instructing the Ephesians about living out their Christian life in a manner that reflects the Savior who has changed them, that they are no longer the old Uh, old people they used to be. And this is the calling upon every Christian. And this is the beauty of the scriptures, really, that though Paul was writing to specific churches with specific instructions nearly 2,000 years ago, those same words he penned are inspired, empowered, and preserved by the Holy Spirit of God to instruct God's people in every generation until the end of history. This is the marvel of the Word of God. It is divine. It is inspired. It is supernatural. And this means our text before us is a call to us today to live out the Christian life as we see it here, to practice what Paul puts forth. Now, living out the Christian life involves removing the old and putting on the new. That's the key principle here that Paul brought to our attention In verses 22 through 24, you notice that he tells them to put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, and to put on the new self, but created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's a great change that took place in a Christian. They were born again. Their old self they must put away because of the new creation that they are in Christ. Now, last week we expounded verse 25 through verse 27. Paul gave some specific principles of practice there. Just to summarize briefly for you, firstly, we learned that the Christian was to put away falsehood and replace it with speaking the truth. And so we learned that there are several ways in which lying and falsehood manifest, and that is a natural disposition Uh, that should be put to death, put away by the Christian. Secondly, we saw that being angry, he says, calls on them to be angry and do not sin. Anger is yet another reality of the human life that can be sinful, leading into further sins, but it also could have a uh, righteous motive and should be under control in a godly manner. So we see we are to remove lying and replace it with truth. Remove ungodly, uncontrolled anger and replace it with godly, controlled anger. These are the imperatives for us as Christians. But now we're going to look at a couple new aspects in which Paul brings our attention. He's not done bringing out this specific instruction of removing and replacing in the Christian life. So notice with me in our notes, number one this morning, we see very fundamentally... Replace stealing with working and giving. Replace stealing with working and giving. And here's what we find with this. 
The old nature is prone to stealing from others. Why is it that people steal? Because it's their nature in sin to do so. That's what prompts them. Now you look at what verse 28 says. He says, let the thief no longer steal. What's it mean to steal? I think John Gill puts it well when he says this, stealing or theft is a fraudulent taking away of another man's goods without the knowledge or the will of the owner for the sake of gain. You know, stealing is, is one of those sins that is very fundamentally known, like lying, right? Uh, we don't really touch much on lying, but yet it is one that is pervasive and needs to be touched on, and the same applies to stealing. And most people within their own conscience understand that stealing is wrong. And we learn that it's expressly wrong as we read through the Scriptures, even given in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 and verse 15, God said to His people, you shall not steal. Well, guess what? That command is repeated in the New Testament. It is wrong to steal from others. Now, one might wonder why Paul puts this simple command into view. I mean, some of these things that are so fundamental, we may think, well, we don't really need to hear that. We know that, right? Is Paul merely referencing their past life of stealing and now they should put that away? Did the Ephesians have thieves, those who were stealing among them presently, who were professing believers? Certainly there could be truth in both of those suggestions. Now, historically, stealing in Asia Minor was a very common practice. It was just kind of a usual thing that many people did. And so when something is usual and common, it's sometimes not thought of as well, it's thought of as being, well, it's not that bad. Kind of like lying, right? We looked at it last week. Some people think that, well, lying, you know, it's here or there, it's just not that bad. But you look at what Scripture specifically instructs us into here. Regardless of what may prompt someone to steal or, or had prompted someone to steal, this practice must be put away by the Christian. The same principle applies to stealing as it does to lying or any other sin. One may have been a liar before their conversion, but that does not mean that they are instantly free from all temptation to lie. That is something you have to consciously put to death. You have to consciously say, no, I'm going to speak truth, I'm not going to lie. The same thing applies to stealing. Stealing, like lying, comes naturally to the fallen flesh, and even those who are converted must guard against stealing, especially if you were prone to stealing before your conversion. Because sins that you were prone to do, predisposed to do more regularly than others, those are the ones that are going to fight most heavily against you in your flesh. Now, stealing, as I mentioned, was a prominent issue in Paul's day. And do we think it's a prominent issue today? Absolutely, it is. In fact, we see more and more in recent days just blatant, open stealing without any fear or regard for the law, right? I've seen countless videos of uh, people coming into the Apple store. You know what the Apple store is, right? It's not a store that sells apples. It's Apple computers and technology, high-end expensive stuff. 
I'm talking about these, I've seen videos of people walking in there, ripping these computers and phones and iPads right off the tables. They're corded down so they don't get stolen easily. But these guys, they just come in broad daylight, middle of the day, in front of everybody and just rip them up and take a handful out. Blatant open thievery. Blatant open stealing. No fear of of punishment. Perhaps there should be some stricter punishment against thievery that may help curb this evil to some degree. But one thing we know is that stealing is rampant. There's a variety of ways in which people steal, and some of them are quite crafty, and you might even find yourself doing that just naturally. Now, we think of stealing, and we might think of grand larceny or petty theft. But what about pocketing the extra money when the cashier gives you more than your right change? Huh? You know what I'm talking about? That would be stealing. Downloading movies or music on the internet without purchasing them. I know how that works. I was a teenager once. And by the way, just like I said, I've cheated in the past in my high school days. I've repented since then of my stealing music off the internet. I know how that stuff works. You're not going to slip it by uh, God. Understand that that is thievery. That is stealing, taking that which does not belong to you. How about this? Wasting time and being lazy when you're on the clock at work. Is that a form of stealing? Absolutely it is. You know why? Your employer is paying you for work for the times that you're supposed to be working. And if you are intentionally trying to slip, sl- sl- uh, uh, slide by the work hours, you're stealing from your employer. Stealing presents itself in many ways. And if, you're aren't, if you aren't careful, you can fall into the temptation of such. Recently, we sold a piece of furniture to someone through Facebook Marketplace and the guy came to pick it up. It was a bookshelf, and he, and he said, uh, 150 right? He was getting ready. He was ready to pay me $150. Well, we had agreed at $120. Now, in that moment, I could have said, yeah, $150. you are right. Guess what I had done? I would have been stealing because I went back on what we had agreed on. Instead, I said, no, I posted it for $120. It's only $120. And he was thankful I did. I said, well, thanks for your honesty. Because he genuinely didn't realize that he had quoted me wrong. Now, it would have been easy to slip that extra $30 in my pocket and maybe paid for a meal at Freddy's. Well, maybe. You know what the economy is right now, right? $30 won't cover much. But here's the reality. Sometimes the devil will orchestrate an opportunity for you to steal that you didn't previously plan or think about or have any intention of doing, but there it is, wide open. That's how the devil works anyways. With temptation, presents opportunities that you had not particularly planned for. And if you are prone to stealing, by all means, you must be on extra guard against that. Take that with any kind of temptation, any form of sin. Thomas Adams rightly said this, Satan, like a fisher, baits his hook according to the appetite of the fish. You understand that Satan has had the privilege of studying humanity for nearly 6,000 or more years. He knows how the human mind works. He knows how your life works. 
He knows what you're weak at. And so here's where we must be on guard against it. Stealing is a reality that Christians must put away. Now, that brings us to consider, why is it that people steal in the first place? Well, the core reason is our sin nature, with, which is prone to the sin of stealing. We read in James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. So the core, the core desire of sin comes from within the flesh. That's something you have to understand. But there are other contributing factors that entice the sinful nature to steal. Let me mention just a few that, that come to mind. One is laziness. Laziness is one contributing factor, as we'll see later in the text. Those who refuse to work and provide for themselves tempt themselves to steal. Why? Because human life has certain needs that must be met in order to live. You must eat, you must drink, you must pay your bills. And if you don't work to provide those things, you're going to look for some wraparound stealing to get them. So you understand that laziness prompts people to steal. And some have become extra clever in their slavery to slothfulness. Many of the beggars that you'll see on street corners, they're not as poor as you think they are. Now, understand, there are some that genuinely, they don't have anything. But there's been, there's been studies done where men have followed some of these beggars, and they drive a lot nicer cars than us. They steal by playing the pity game. But they're lazy. So you understand that we have to be wise and understanding those sorts of things, but laziness is one thing that prompts people to steal. Greed is another reason. Some people simply want more and more and will do whatever they can do to get more. They're just greedy. And then another reason I think that people are, tend to steal is desperation. Desperate people go to desperate measures to get what they need. But in every instance of stealing, what damage does it do? Well, firstly, it's sin against God. You're accountable for that. You're not going to slip one by God. You're accountable for every form of stealing. But secondly, here's what directly, why this is so important directly what Paul is saying. Stealing directly impacts your neighbor, the one you're stealing from. It's not an innocent sin. It affects the one you're taking from. Now, you may think it doesn't affect anyone else, but it does. Notice how Paul ties this command to the very essence of the second commandment, the great second great commandment Jesus gave. You remember what the second great commandment is? Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as what? As yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The first one is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But listen how Paul ties this together in Romans 13, 9 through 10. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. In essence, what you find is if you truly love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from them. If you don't love your neighbor, you're going to steal from them. And by not loving your neighbor, you break the second great commandment that Jesus gave which in turn is a breaking of what here we find. Do not steal. We can apply that to lying, adultery, any of those sorts of things. 
So stealing must be put away by the people of God. It is of the old self. Notice with me letter B. The new nature, in the contrast of this, the new nature is to practice labor and generosity. Being an honest, diligent, hardworking individual and being generous with what God blesses you with. This is what we replace stealing with. Verse 28b, notice what it says. In contrast, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Now, understand that laboring and working are part of life. It is God's design for this world. Now, many people hate work and loathe the idea of work. Some, some, some think that work must be the result of the fall into sin. You understand that work is given to man before the fall and after the fall. You see, before mankind fell into sin, God gave work to Adam. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it and to keep it. Do you see that? Work is part of God's perfect creation. It's also part of the fallen creation. The difference now is that work is harder because of sin. In the sweat of your face, Adam, you will till the land. There is a a struggle with it. Now, understand that your resistance, if you have a resistance to work, that is due to your sinful nature. And I believe this, that one of the greatest problems of our day is there is a generation of lazy bums who depend on everyone else to do everything for them. We agree on that? There are many what I would call moochers, who take, 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 but never work for anything. Now, the blame of this ultimately falls at the feet of the home, which has failed to teach the next generation what it means to work. I'll never forget when Dad decided he was going to teach me what hard work was. We had friends who had farms, and I was just a you know, young teenager, 12, 13, I can't remember. And there was a fence row that had all sorts of tall weeds up and down it. And so he said, oh, you're going to go clear this fence row. I was like, okay, where's the weed eater? You don't get a weed eater. <laughs> you get, I don't even remember what that tool was called, but man, I hate that tool. I was sore for two weeks, but I got it done. He had an intention of wanting to teach me what it was to work hard and feel it, to do something. So, ultimately, the home is responsible for not teaching the next generation to work, but there's also a cultural influence that has affected that too, in which our government has given so many handouts to people, they've become dependent on the government, and they're lazy as all get out. Therefore, they refuse to work. Why go to work when I can just... Depend on the government to do everything for me. Now, here's the problem with laziness. Laziness breeds laziness. It breeds laziness. It makes it easier to be lazy the longer you are lazy. You ever been laying around watching TV and you thought, man, I need to get up and do something, but let's just watch one more episode. You get to the end of that episode and you're feeling, well, maybe I need to get up. Just one more. Before you know it, your day is gone. Day's gone. Listen to Proverbs 19, 15. Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. 
See, eventually, when the going gets rough and there's something the lazy want but refuse to work for it, stealing becomes on the table, comes to the table. And it is a miserable thing to be in that kind of a situation. Proverbs 21, 25, the desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. Desire, 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 but they don't have the will to work. Matthew Henry put it so eloquently here, I think. The slothful desire the gains which the diligent get, but they hate the pains which the diligent take. There is so much truth there. So understand that regardless of what has influenced laziness in the hearts of people, it ultimately stems from the sinful nature of humanity, and every Christian is called to put it off and get to work. So you see how all this ties together. Stealing is directly tied to the lack of work, which is directly tied to laziness. Laziness prompts the temptation to steal. Therefore, laziness must be put to death and work must take its place. So you won't be prompted to steal. Listen to what Paul says in Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but as busybodies. Now here's how serious this is. Paul says this, and God says through him, if you refuse to do honest work, you ought not to eat. Now some view that, well, that's just insensitive. That's not fair. Don't take it up with me. Take it up with God. He wrote it. It wasn't me. We are called to work in this world. And if we are lazy and idle, we are sinful and open the door to further sin, such as stealing, in one way or another. Now, I want to note this, too. There are genuine people who are unable to work. Providentially, we ought to have compassion on such situations. But understand this, too. There are also many who simply refuse to work and make whatever excuse they can make to get out of work. And they will play the pity card we got to have wisdom with that, too. But the Lord knows our true state, if we're truly unable to work or not. If you are able to work and portray yourself as unable, then you go back to verse 25 and you break that command of practicing falsehood. So here's what we find. The Lord takes this very seriously. As we look at Paul's words to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially of his members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's how serious this is. So Paul wants the thief to quit stealing and get to work, not only to fulfill his earthly needs and make sure his provisions are met, but notice what else he mentions with this. This is also part of our Christian life experience. He says in verse, in the next verse, in verse 28, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You understand that the Christian life is a life of, life of working, but is also a life of giving. We are called to work, and through what work God provides our, that work God provides our needs, but God often goes above and beyond in providing more than our needs, doesn't he? He does that. We, we can't even begin to count the blessings God gives us. I mean, we sing, count your blessings. How many of us have sat down and done that? You can't even list them all. Every little thing that God gives his people... He gives us so much more than just our food and clothing and roof over our head. So much more. We are wealthy compared to so many other Christians in other countries of this world. 
So we have to understand how much God has blessed us. And why does he bless us in such a way? So that we as his people may be able to help others in need and be a blessing to them. John MacArthur rightly says a Christian's desire to earn more should be for the purpose of being able to give more and help more. You understand there's nothing wrong with earning more. Nothing, it's not a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to have riches, but it is a sin for riches to have you. There's a great difference there. And what we have, whatever God gives us and blesses us with, ought to be, ought to be not only used to cover the needs that we have, but also to be able to help others who have genuine need. And this was the great call of Christians, especially in the early first century when many of them were in poverty and suffering persecution. They took up offerings to help the saints in need. You see, Christians should be the most generous and giving people in all the world. You know why that is? Because we have given, been given more than we could ever fathom in Jesus Christ. Not only have we been given eternal life, but he blesses us beyond our provisions. Listen to what Paul says. Go with me to Acts 20. Acts 20, verse 35, 33 through verse 35 for a moment. Acts 20, 33-35. Listen to what Paul... And remember, this, in this context, he's talking to the Ephesians. The Ephesian elders. He was in Ephesus. So it ties directly with what he wrote later. But Acts 20, verse 33 through verse 35, this is what Paul says. I, have co- I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Your, you, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul was a living example among them of what it meant to work hard. To work hard. Not only to provide for himself, but also to help with others. And so here's the very fundamental principle we're to practice. We must remove stealing and put it away out of our life, any kind of thievery, and replace that with working hard and being generous. Working hard and being generous because that is who we are in Christ. Hardworking, generous people because of who Christ is and what he's done in our life. Notice with me number two. And I'll encourage you, it's the last point, but don't get excited. Number two, replace ungodly words with godly words. Very simple. This comes down to our speech, the way we talk. Replace ungodly words with godly words. And here's the reality. The old nature produces corrupt speech. The old nature produces corrupt speech. Now look at verse 29 as we look at this next verse. Notice that Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Now, we could go very deep here, but you've only got so much time. But why don't you think for a moment about the danger of the tongue. How corrupt the tongue truly is. It is one of the most destructive forces in the world. With the power of the tongue, great sins can be ushered forth, and great damage can be done in a variety of ways, especially among the body of believers. I mean, you think about it even in the political world. Something someone said on... Recording 10 years ago somehow surfaces, right? 
And it causes them all sorts of pain and trouble, all because of that one moment in which they spoke something corrupt. And here Paul calls on the Christian to put away corrupting talk. Now, the word used for corrupting here means bad or unwholesome to the extent of being harmful. You'll find that this word was often used in that day to describe rotten fruit, vegetables, or other spoiled food. Now, do we know how pleasant rotten or spoiled food is? Sure, right? There was, a, there was one time we went and got groceries, and we had them in the back seat. We go to unload the car, but we accidentally left a package of raw chicken in there. It had slid under the seat. Under the, under, under the seat, one of those. And so little by little, that putrid smell arose in the car, and we couldn't figure what it was. We thought maybe we'd hit a skunk or hit hit some kind of a dead animal, and it rubbed on the tire or something. And then we found it because it got so bad we had to find what is this smell. How distasteful rotten raw chicken is that's been sitting in the car for a few days. Well, that's the kind of description Paul uses for this talk. Corrupting talk. Now understand, this is the kind of speech that the unregenerate world around us regularly engages in. It's it's near impossible not to see or hear how the world around us talks, whether it's at school, whether it's at work, whether it's at the grocery store, at the gym, in the music or the shows or the movies. You hear corrupt speech all around you. They talk this way regularly without any thought or conviction about their words because it's their nature to talk that way. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 34, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The mouth is often a window to the heart. Now here's what we find. Corrupt speech, corrupt talking that Paul's here mentioning comes in a variety of ways. It could be cursing. Could be foul language, could be vulgar references, it could be degrading or unkind words towards another. Could be speaking evil of others with ill intent. Now here's the reality, every one of us has been guilty of corrupting talk at some point in some way, even as a Christian. Because our tongue is a loose cannon if we don't pay attention to it. We may find ourselves in weak moments in our flesh in which we have succumbed to this kind of speech. You remember a Christian who succumbed to using his tongue in a sinful way? A Christian we highly regard in the scriptures. His name was Peter. And he was one of those that had a propensity to put his foot in his mouth. You know what that means? You speak too soon and you wish you hadn't spoke. But we recall how Peter... When the Lord was betrayed, he was noticed as being one of the disciples. In Matthew 26, 74, they come to him again and say, hey, you're one of them. Listen to what he says. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. What's he done here? Peter has denied the Lord with his tongue, and he has also used a curse to verify his lie. A saved man, an apostle of the Lord. And how broken he was after he realized what he had done. That moment in Luke's gospel where as soon as the cock crows, the Lord turns his head and looks directly at Peter. And Peter sees the Lord. And he realizes that he has denied him with his own voice. 
But how greatly we must be on guard against using our tongue for such language also. As Christians, we are not to let this kind of talk continue to come out of our mouths. Paul reiterates this truth to the Colossians. He says in Colossians 3.8, Now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and notice this, and obscene talk from your mouth. You say, why is this so important? Here's why. Because this kind of talk is of the old nature, not the new. This is the big difference. You say, well, what's the big deal if I curse here and there? It resembles the old nature. Are you a Christian? Yes. Then you ought to live out the new nature. You're to mortify sin. Not encourage it. Not pander it. You are to mortify Sin, including the sins of the tongue. Now, the tongue can be extremely challenging for us to bring under control, even as a Christian. It takes diligent attention and the aid of the Holy Spirit to do so. Listen to me, listen, look with me at James for a moment. James speaks heavily on this topic. I'll read just a portion of this text, but you read the whole chapter, the beginning of the chapter, you'll see more of what he's saying. But James 3, look at 7 through verse 12 for a moment. Listen to what he says. He says, for every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and our Father, and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What a contrast James gives regarding the tongue. The tongue is so powerful, no human can tame the tongue as wild beasts could be tamed. It is unruly and easily follows the impulses of the sinful flesh. Yet, at the same time, James gives a contrast here that with the same mouth comes blessing and cursing and says to these Christians, this ought not to be that way. It ought not to be that way in your Christian life. The reality is is that it is only by God's power that the tongue can be properly used. Were it not for the Holy Spirit of God, who knows where we'd be and what we'd be saying. We owe every ounce of our sanctification to the Holy Spirit of God. But that does not eliminate our own responsibility to submit to the Word of God here and submit to the Spirit and put away corrupting talk. Perhaps we ought to pray as David prays here in this fashion. Psalm 141.3, he prays, Set a guard, O Lord, over where? My mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So we see the old nature. Old nature produces corrupting speech. Corrupt speech. But notice letter B. The new nature produces edifying speech. Edifying speech. Notice what we see here in verse 29. Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, here's the reality. All forms of corrupting talk, not only are they sinful, but are they beneficial in any way? 
No. Corrupt talk has no benefit whatsoever. They don't do any good for you. It doesn't do any good for anybody else either. So God wants our speech to do the opposite of corrupt speech. And as Christians, we find our talk is to be pure. It is to be clean. It is to be helpful. It is to be encouraging. It is to be instructive. Notice that Paul says that it is to be good for what? For building up. Building up who? Others we talk with. Especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, here's the danger with our tongue. How easily it is that words are used to tear down instead of building up. And by all means, Christian, understand that our words can easily tear down and you not even realize they've torn down. Not even realize it. The words we speak should build up others, encouraging them in their own Christian life. And Because here's the reality. Every Christian needs encouragement. Every single one of us needs encouragement. And that primarily comes through speech. Notice how Paul also says, as fits the occasion. Now, here's the reality, too. There are certain times and situations when our words are truly needed to build up another more than other times. Proverbs 15, 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good is it? There are times when you are maybe down, discouraged, defeated, you're, you're just very low, but a good word, an encouraging brother or sister helped lift you up by their words. You needed it at that time. Sometimes it's the right time to speak. You may see someone who has been burdened, who is struggling with something. Maybe they're struggling with a sin and you need to encourage them in their sanctification and mortification of it. Maybe they're just having a hard time in life. Maybe they're sick and ill. You can speak something to edify them. Use your words for the sake of building up another. Proverbs 12, 25. Here's another contrast. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. But a good word. Makes him glad. Makes him glad. Anybody ever been there? Anxious? Weighed down with anxiety? Needed someone to help lift you up? I've been there. I'm sure all of us have at some point. But understand this too. Paul says as is fit for the occasion. There's a right time to speak. That there's also a long time to speak. We don't always need to speak just for the sake of speaking. We need to use wisdom to know words at the right time. Now, what is the purpose of this kind of speaking? Notice that Paul says here, it's to build them up, but notice specifically as he closes out this verse, that it may give grace to those who hear. That it may give grace to those who hear. Now, the word grace here has a different than usual definition in the Greek lexicon in this context. And it speaks of a winning quality or attractiveness that invites a favorable reaction. What's that mean? It's kind of hard to understand. In other words, our speech should promote a favorable reaction in those we speak to. Specifically, a reaction that encourages them in Christ and encourages them towards His Word. You see, the intention of our words should be the good of others. And this sometimes, it may just be a simple loving encouragement towards them. It can also come as a loving correction towards them but in both cases our words must have the right motive and the right message 
in them. The way we talk should promote grace among the people of God. This is how the words of Jesus were. Luke chapter 4 and verse 22, listen to this. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words. The gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Now understand, Jesus' words were gracious. But they didn't always stimulate identical responses. Some turned to him with his gracious words. Some turned from him. But in every case, Jesus' words were gracious and full of truth. And so the speech of the believer is to reflect the speech of the Savior. Gracious speech is the speech of our Lord. Colossians 4, 6. Paul says to that church, which understand Colossians really is a parallel letter, much like Ephesians. But he says, let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Gracious speech, understand this church, goes a long way in edifying and building up the body of Christ you belong to. We must pay attention to how we talk and what we say. When it comes down to it, we must be cautious in all of these areas. The aim of our God-given tongue as a new creation in Christ is the glory of the Lord and the good of His people. We must put away the old nature who wants to use the tongue in a corrupt manner and let us live out the new nature that is to use the tongue in a gracious and loving manner. And I think a prayer that we could pray just like David in the minute ago. David said in Psalm 1914, and this is a great word for us. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. My strength or my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19 and verse 14. That could be a daily thing we need to probably put before us. So understand this today, Christians. Living out who we are is realized by removing practices of the old nature and replacing them with practices of the new nature. We've looked at just two. And they, these two have, have, have further roots within them that contribute to them. We must remove stealing and replace it with working and giving, being generous. We must remove ungodly speech and replace it with godly speech. These are areas every Christian must take to heart. Now, I don't know what your life is like. I'm not following you around with a microphone, listening to you. I'm not following you around. A lot of people think preachers follow people around. I don't, I promise. I don't, I don't have to do that job because God's everywhere already, right? The eyes of the Lord in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And as he guides me into the text, understand that that's all him. I have no clue what your life is like. But if any of this has struck your own heart, that means God has spoken to your heart, not me. So I encourage you to take it to heart, to apply it to your life, and make sure that you are endeavoring to live out in the new nature, live out who you truly are in Christ. Maybe today you're not a new creation. Maybe today you don't know Christ. I hope today that you will understand that Christ and His redemptive work 
his death on the cross, his shedding of blood, atonement on the cross, his resurrection, that is the only salvation for any and every sinner who repents and believes. If you've never been born again, you don't know him. You must look to Christ alone because he's the only one who can make us new and change our life. Let us take these applications home with us today. Let's stand to our feet as we close.